expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David. Joining me from the pack, once again, the ever-present Carl the Sound Guy. God help us all. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're just going to go ahead and try and get through it. Um, I just, I mean, we can't get rid of him. He's, oh, shut up, Carl. Uh, just, really, really, dude. That is, that is you on any given Friday night. So, our guest today... I'm a fan of our guest today, and I have been for about 10 years, and, and we'll get into why that is, but it's Aaron Task. Aaron is the producer and journalist based in New York. He has written articles for Fortune Magazine, Inc. Magazine, Business Insider, Muckrake, Investment U, and others. He is currently the host of Alpha Trader Podcast for Seeking Alpha. Aaron was the digital editor for Fortune Magazine and the host of Fortune's first podcast, Fortune Unfiltered. Prior to that, Aaron was the editor-in-chief at Yahoo Finance and the host of The Daily Ticker from 2008 to 2015. Does anybody else remember 2008 or are you blocking it out like I am? He was the executive editor at TheStreet.com. We've had a few of those guys on lately and they're great. In the early days from 1998 to 2007, Aaron was often a substitute host for Jim Cranor's Real Money Radio and John Batchelor's show on ABC Radio. He was also involved as an editor uh, with the book Bailout Nation by Barry Ritzholtz. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, I usually get into people's background and how they got into journalism, and you're kind of out there that way. Do you want to like just give us just a brief history getting up to the street.com? Sure. I mean, the brief history is that I wanted to be a journalist from the time I could remember. I was the editor of my school paper in high school and went to school at Rutgers to work um, at the Daily Targum, which is the oldest college daily in the country. At least that's what we claimed at the time. Right. Um, and went to journalism school there and then came out of school. Wanted to be a sports journalist, couldn't find a job in sports journalism, got a job in financial journalism. And one of my first editors, Joe Mizak, who still writes for Bloomberg about muni bonds, great guy, said, you know, finance is, is finance is sports that matter. Um, and, and that stuck with me. There was a part of me that thought, you know, the, what happens on the court is exciting, but there, you know, it doesn't really affect people's lives. You know, I go back and forth about that, but you know, finance seemed at the, certainly at the time as a young guy, I was like, it's more serious and important and I should do this. And that set me off on that path. And I was very fortunate in a couple of ways. Well, they coincided the, the dot-com bubble was great the first five or six years, you know, the bull market right. really got people interested in stocks, you know, and for the first time in a long time, uh, the public got very interested. And so there was a lot of opportunities for a young journalist like me going to the street.com in the early days, I got to do things there that i never would have gotten to do at a place like Dow Jones, where I had been working previously, where it was a union shop and it was all about seniority. And it was, you know, you got to have to wait for that kid. 
or the street.com. It was a meritocracy and we were making it up. And I gave a lot of credit to Jim Cramer and, and Dave Kansas, who was the editor in chief at the time for giving a lot of people a really great start in, in financial journalism. And the alumni of the street.com have gone on to do amazing things. Right. We just had journalism. Corey on the show. Corey's Corey Johnson's uh, a, he's a brilliant guy. He's an incredible musician. I don't know if that you got into that with him. Oh yeah. We, we, we talked about it. Car, uh, Carl, what was it? You, uh, you called it uh felonious monk because you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just, just listen. Right, I said great. to that's Alexa, great. play some felonious monk. And she played, I mean, I don't and know. She played it. Yeah. Oh, God, dude. And you really, you really missed your opportunity to play the jazz flute. You'd have been fantastic. <laughs> I'm sorry, Aaron, you were, you you were probably saying something interesting before Carl didn't. There's nothing more interesting to me than jazz flutes. Yeah, cool. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I, I couldn't name them all, so I'm going to leave somebody out. But Jesse Eisinger won a Pulitzer. He's now a ProPublica. Yeah. Alex yeah. Berenson with the New York Times. Chicken Shit for uh, uh, a rich. What was the book called? Uh, yes, Chicken Shit. shit for, yes. Uh, um, whatever. We'll, we'll get um, it. Dan Calarusso is basically running CNBC now. Yeah. Um, Adam Feuerstein is like the ace biotech reporter in the country. He's at Stat. Yeah. Herb Greenberg was there back in the day. I know he's been a guest on your show. Yeah. Herb's a friend. He's a good guy. I really like he's Herb. A, he's a great guy and, and a great journalist. So, and there were, and I'm blanking on other people now, and I apologize to anyone no, else okay. who's listening. Adam. What a place to cut your teeth. Yeah. It was a great place. Adam Lashinsky was the other name I was thinking of. You know, you probably know from Fortune and Fox Business and places like that. I mean, Corey was telling us like some stories from the street.com where they had like one phone cord that they'd pass around to the computers, whoever, whoever needed it to dial up. Were you there for that kind of stuff? I wasn't there quite that early. I was sort of in the second round of hires and I had my own phone and computer. I remember that. Well, I mean, I mean, for the computer to dial up, they had to plug it in to the modem. We had, we, we had, we had T1 lines, I think by the time I got there, okay. it was, the internet was good by the time I got there, but I can imagine cause it was a bootstrap operation. And again, we all, we, you know, we made it up every day, you know, how we were going to do it, what we were going to do. And again, a really talented group of people at a, a great point in time. And again, opportunities to do things I never would have gotten to do at other places. And that was the place where I don't know, probably 2000 and, I'm dating myself here. Um, three or four was sort of the early days of, of online video. And they said, who wants to do a video? And I was like, oh, I'll see what that's about. I'll do that. Yeah. Which led me to the job at Yahoo Finance, which was an incredible platform and a great opportunity where I got to interview you know, a lot of amazing people and had incredible opportunities. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, since you're, since you're moving there, although I, I wouldn't mind getting like your favorite or best story from the street.com. I mean, of whoever ran around one day with their pants on their head, or <laughs> <laughs> I'm betting it was Corey. <laughs> no, Corey, Corey probably wouldn't have been the guy running around with his pants on his head. Uh, <laughs> there was a guy named Dave Shabelman. We called him Shabes. He probably would have been the guy running around. He's a Chicago guy. You know, they, you know, they have a couple uh, beers and they, they're a little they, weird. Don't you know? They get a little weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, so that, that brings us to Yahoo and I'll tell you, Aaron, that's that's where I became a fan, because uh, as I had kind of mentioned, 2008 was a tough year for for me. 
uh, we, we had never shorted a stock, um, you know, basically had that outlook that, you know, short sellers were just, you know, screaming fire in a crowded theater, or, you know, or financial or evil, terrorists, like I'm called. Near, yeah, 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 there you go. Evil, yeah, you haven't lived until you've been called a financial terrorist in a legal complaint. It's, uh-huh. it's, it's awesome. Wow. That's, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my parents read, so that was, <laughs> I was just hoping they didn't read that. And it was, it was, it was just a really tough time to try and start really understanding the markets. And y- you would be on there every day. And a lot of times it's Henry Blodgett, yeah. but you know, for your part, you were a real calming force. Like it was, you were never too up. You were never too down. Positive, but getting the message out there, and and trying to get average investors to understand finance, which is not easy. No, it's not. And I guess I'd like you to maybe take us back to 2008 because you had just started there. So, like, what a time to start there, and then the financial crisis comes along, and I, I bet your viewership went way up. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, you know, at the time, Yahoo would claim, you know, we were the most watched financial news video operation in North America because there's, you know, I bet that was else. true. Yeah, I bet it was true. And and even there, still relatively early, like that was I guess the end of web 1.1 Yeah. Yahoo Finance was juggernaut, huge audience. And I was hired late 2007 to be one of the hosts of what was called tech ticker. The idea was Yahoo's, we're gonna cover Silicon Valley. And I was sort of the guy to cover the tech stocks. And Henry Blodgett, you know, being a former analyst was gonna be the analyst. And then the financial crisis hit. And fortunately, my first job as I mentioned earlier in financial journalism was for the bond buyer, which is, they call it the Bible or they did at the time covering the muni bond industry. So I got a grounding in financial markets starting with fixed income. So I had some understanding of what a bond was, first of all, right. I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't. And, and certainly a lot of financial journalists, they just want to cover stocks. And so they don't know much about bonds. So I had that understanding. And, you know, and Henry and I, particularly, we quickly realized that talking about tech stocks was like, you know, that's not the story. The story is the whole financial system is starting to melt down. I mean, I I still remember the take under a Bear Stearns by JP Morgan. And that was, I think, March, 2008. And then the market rallied and everyone was like, yay, that's over. And I was like, "Eh, that's not over. I I was not at all. Well, your, your, your old boss didn't agree because he was just like, man, this is a one-time thing. Listen, we all make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. But that one, like, that probably hangs on him for a while. Not that he's not done some great things since. Yeah, I, I, I actually remember him kind of saying that and being like, "Well, I mean, no offense, Jim, but if Bozo the Stock Clown from his 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 nightly show says it's going to be fine, I really felt like it was going to be fine." Yeah, um, and 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 look, so Jim Cramer was very good to me, and you know, I owe him a lot of what I've done in my career to the opportunity. No, most people I talk to say he's a very good guy. I mean, it's he's just a great that, that, guy. Yeah. The and, show with and, the buzzers and the whistles and yeah, the whatever. And, and, and look, he, he tries to be entertaining and with that and puts himself out there in a way that leaves himself open to ridicule in some cases and criticism. And you said this and that happened. And I always 
you know, in some, uh, not that I felt bad for him, but like, cause he put himself out there to do it, right. but that he, you know, my, my big con- concern as a journalist with fast money was that he would say one thing one day and then change his mind the next, which is a trader makes perfect sense. But the average person doesn't operate like that. Well, right? especially, especially when they went out, you used to call it the, uh, the mad money bounce. Right. Like right. So I, I remember back in the day, you're talking circa 2008 or nine. Some of these, some of these guys that I knew, they would just wake up the next morning and buy what he was blowing a whistle on, or you yeah. know, putting a horn yeah. on the the night before. And yeah, when you change your mind, because the market changes in a day too. No, which of course which you and I know. Yeah. They get they get all pissed off over it. Yeah. So there there was a lot of that, and you know, again. Um, He's obviously done very well for himself. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You know, Cry me a river. He's fine. Head. Yeah. The only yeah. time I ever felt sorry for him, though, was on the John Stewart show. That that was cringeworthy. Yeah, he, got beat, he got beat up pretty bad. Um, yeah, well, it, it just goes to show, like, with anything in life, come in prepared, because John Stewart did. Yeah. Well. And I don't think Jim was prepared for that. And that was, that was, that was a tough moment for him. It was. I mean, my, watching it, I, I felt pain for him, but I also felt like he was employing a rope-a-dope strategy, and he was just there to to say, I'm sorry, and not, and hopefully it would go away, and sort of not rile things up further, and John Stewart just kept coming at him, but... Yeah, guess, yeah. the rope-a-dope strategy put him through the ropes there on yeah, that day, but yeah. like, hey, did it? Did it because he's doing right. great. I mean, he's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's got a he's got a a show every hour. I'm I'm surprised he's not doing the closing bell too. Right, exactly. <laughs> and just one one of the things, Street.com days, you know, right before I left, where those times that you're talking about with Mad Money and the Mad Money bounce, I hired a reporter to basically write up the Mad Money show right. because it had such an effect. And those stories did great for us you know, in SEO and other things like that. And he that couldn't be involved was, in that himself, right? He couldn't he have, no, yeah, yeah. no, he, he wasn't. Yeah. And there were a lot, you know, to his credit and the street.com's credit, there was a big wall between what Jim did and what the editorial team did. And it was very clear. And we as individuals couldn't own individual stocks. That was part of the deal he made with the SEC when he started the street.com to, to, you know, remove any sense that he was telling editorial team, hey, write about these stocks because I own them, you know, for the hedge fund or something like that. I think know. that's it's kind of standard for for a lot of places. Like Seeking Alpha, I think, is the same policy. I, I mean, at least they did at they, one point. They have they have long holding period. You uh, can buy individual stocks, but you have to hold them. You can't flip them, basically. Like, And you can't front run a story that you've edited or you know is coming, things like that. And again, Street.com, we, we were way out in front in the you know, disclosure. When we talked to sources, we were one of the first news outlets that would say like, do you have a, a position in this stock, right? Or do you have, does your firm have an investment banking relationship with this company, which nobody had done. Um, right. And now it's become more standard. But I mean, people time, are on CNBC talking their book every day. Uh, every day. And they'll put up a little slate at the end or, you know, underneath the Chiron and they'll say, you know, so-and-so has a relationship or, but they don't, ask them directly and we would do that. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I feel like on some of these segments, they're just like, okay, you, you know, you own this and you sold this yesterday and whatever, and this is why I own this or that. And it, it really is, it really is a very bull program, right? Oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. yeah. And, and they'll, they'll continue to be, but that's, that's CNBC. So at, at Yahoo Finance and Henry Blodgett was, 
was an interesting character too. I thought he, I thought he was a very good uh, partner for you, uh, and you guys played off each other very well. But like at some point, I pulled up his history, and I'm like, whoa. Oh yeah, I remember. You know, it's interesting now when he was hired. There was a big controversy. Yeah, it must have been in Yahoo, and he had already been hired when I was when they were recruiting me. And I sort of debated like, well, is that going to be bad for me reputation wise to be working with Henry Blodgett, given he was barred from the SEC by Elliot Spitzer, right? Who we now, you know, later on, we realized right. not the, not the, you know, the cleanest guy in the, in the room, right? Something about New York governors. I don't know. Yeah, um, they, they, uh, they really like ass. <laughs> kind of like three in a row. Yeah. <laughs> they really do. All right. We're on a podcast. You can say that. Yeah. So. I mean, at least Spitzer, he had a specific piece that he liked, you know. Yeah, he did. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> he's just all, he's everybody. Yeah, unfortunately for him, he was only client nine in her eyes. Yeah, right, right. Like that. Exactly, <laughs> that's right, client nine, nine client yeah. nine. So I, I, had, I had concerns about that, but, you know, Henry's a very smart guy and, you know, very quick. And we, I, I always looked at it like I was doing play-by-play and he was doing color commentary. Yeah, right? I think and, that's a fair way to put it. And I don't know that he we ever talked about that overtly, but that's sort of because I'm really? by training. And we never said this is how we're going to do it. We just kind of did it. And that, that also, so Yahoo obviously it was a huge company. Yahoo Finance was the biggest you know financial news site out there when we started. But we were the first. Actually, I shouldn't say the first. We were the the second time around when they said we're going to do original content because Corey Johnson actually hosted a show for Yahoo Finance back in the late nineties, that was very short lived, but they were, they tried doing online video then, but this was their the second time around. So we started from scratch and it was one of those like roll the balls out and see what happens kind of situation. That's a basketball analogy. Uh, listen, I, it, I'm not tall, um, but I do understand a basketball <laughs> analogy. More for the listener at home. See, I, see, I, see, I see. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, when I, when you said we never uh, talked about that, I, I actually misunderstood you because, uh, I, th- I thought you meant we never talked about his um, his SEC issues. Uh, I meant I meant our our yeah yeah your dynamic your dynamic yeah, just yeah. Uh, just kind of evolved. But I yeah I, I would think that being a partner next year at some point you're like hey man what the hell? oh we talked about it we yeah. actually talked about it on air once um, and then he interviewed Spitzer after Spitzer's you know uh, issue whatever the word is. Yeah. Yeah. issue scandal whatever it was well then he interviewed spitzer so you don't know what to call it after after elliot spitzer was banging a prostitute in washington dc for you know <laughs> years on end i, I think that's but what you're yeah, referring to that's that's what i'm referring to okay yes. go ahead uh, <laughs> hey world's oldest profession I, you know what yeah. you know how cathartic and uh ironic and w- w- whatever other big word you don't understand carl <laughs> for for henry to be like yeah let's have elliot on now <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, it was cathartic, but also, you know, Henry, also a really interesting character. You know, think about it. He's blamed for the dot-com bubble. He's the poster child for what went wrong. And I, I, I'm i sure every other big analyst you can think of, Mary Meeker comes to mind, did the same thing that he did of internally. Of course. Right? And he, still do. He got caught. Right. He got caught. Is barred from the securities industry. There was a settlement. I'm sure he doesn't have to work in, or not work in a public fashion, but he decides to come back and launch what is now Business Insider or the Insider team, which is huge. Uh, he built a big business. Yeah, he does a nice a job. People. He does a great job. And, you know, there was part of me at the time was sort of like, you know, is this his reconciliation project? But I just think he felt like 
I'm moving forward in my life and this is what I do and this is what I care about and I want to do it. And, you know, after a while I sort of forgot, you know, it wasn't top of mind all the time, but it would come up periodically for sure. Um, and I thought he handled it really, you know, with a lot of grace. And he, when he interviewed Spitzer, he didn't, he didn't, you know, do a nana na 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 like, you know, uh, he no, had a serious he, conversation with him. It was, it was well but done. That's perfect because doing that right. makes him the loser. Right. Exactly. And, and being right, right, above right. it. And he's like you said before, he's a really smart guy and yeah. and savvy. And he knows that, mm-hmm. you know, just being above it keeps him playing above Elliot for the time. Yes, and, exactly. And yeah, I mean, look, he's uh, he didn't do anything that that uh, analysts aren't doing today. You know, that that is, I guess, if I'm if I'm remembering that it's um, recommending stocks to certain clients and telling high net worth clients, um, maybe yeah, not. Well, um, the private emails had the flip side. Yeah, exactly. There was there was one company, I don't remember which was, that he referred to as a piece of shit, POS, in an email internally at Merrill that he was bullying publicly. Um, and again, I, I'm sure every analyst... They do. Every, you know, they all they do, do. That, a- right? Absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, when you've got... And this is part of the 2008 thing going back to it. I mean, I think going into September of 2008, it was nine and a half to one buys to sells. I'm sure. Right. sure so, yeah. so, I mean, what does that industry really mean? Right. Not right. much. Not much. Yeah. yeah. But, and, but I still, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a bull market phenomenon when the market's going up, you'll see sell side analysts still moving stocks. I know. Which I find perplexing, but that's. No, I mean, yeah, and you can count on them. Like um, the day after I put out a short report, I don't even care if it's a total China fraud. This has happened in the past. They they put out a a buy rating or <laughs> well, they just don't care. Yeah, 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 they don't. Yeah, they yeah. I I've had them like uh you know go from buy to neutral, which you're like oh okay, and raise their price target. <laughs> like, <laughs> like well, my favorite is the guys who, you know. Their price target's 150 on Tesla and it's at 600 and they raise it to 400. It's like, okay, like, like what, what value have you brought to me as a investor at this point or a trader? I don't, I don't understand that. Well, I, you know, in their defense on that one, I mean, how, how do you actually value Tesla? I mean, oh, can't. from yeah. a fundamental perspective, you just can't, which yeah. would have been, would have been interesting to hear you like doing that kind of show on, Yahoo Finance now, or in the last three years as this run up? I mean, what do you think of Elon Musk? Well, I can tell you, um, I used to own the stock and I I did, you know, the thing I, I would buy it when it would fall below 200, run it up and sell it. And I did that a few times. And then he did the whole funding secured thing. And I was like, you know what? Oh, that bothered you, huh? Hmm. That bothered me. I was like, that's not okay. And I thought, it, A, it bothered me, and B, I thought, oh, the SEC is going to come after him for this. Oh, so yeah. I sold Real it. hammer I that no they new... were. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought the SEC would do something, but I haven't owned it since then. I mean, I think he had, he, Elon Musk to me is a combination of Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, and P.T. Barnum all rolled into one. And he really, the, the, his ability to move markets isn't, incredible to me the fact that he can land a spaceship vertically i mean that's pretty awesome I and mean, what he's doing at spacex is phenomenal i think uh, i mean he what he's doing at tesla is phenomenal yeah. except for the lies i mean 
that's not so great. But I mean, he he really is kind of first mover status in the electric vehicle space. And exactly, there are a lot of people who who own that vehicle that really love it. Everybody I know who has one loves it. And I, I also think, you know, the, the vehicle is sort of the, the showcase, you know, for the battery technology that he's trying to develop. I mean, I think his ambition is laudable, right? He wants to basically save us all from ourselves and, and climate change and, you know, making energy much cheaper and cleaner to produce. I, I applaud him for that. I, but I, I could never understand the financials of the company or make sense of them. It's the cult of personality thing that yeah, it is. That, really, that yeah, well makes put, me yes. un- uncomfortable when it, it becomes more about the man than the product. And, uh, and I, I mean, look, you can, you can put a lot of people on the right and the left there, you know, Donald Trump and the AOCs and the whatever that are yep. more about, you know, the cult of personality than the actual content or substance. And I, I don't know if that's good for us. Um, in either arena. I agree. And, and I, I, I think, you know, you just touched on it. This reflects our culture, right? You know, we, he's a celebrity. I mean, he hosted Saturday Night Live, which was bizarre to me that he would do that. But yeah. I think, you know, like he needs more of a challenge, but I think he's such a smart guy. He's like, Oh, I'll try this. I'll see how this will go. Um, but you know, that puts you on a different plane than 99.9% of CEOs. Um, yeah. I'm sure he, they created a pretty safe space for him there. I yeah, wonder, I, if members. I recall, there were a lot of, a lot of the cast members didn't want him because yeah. he's so rich. Right. I think right. that was the issue. Well, I um, mean, it would have been really great if they didn't want him because they were just like offended that he was misrepresenting the truth. But, you know, <laughs> like the, like the woke bitches they are, they're like, <laughs> I don't want him because he's got too much money. Can you imagine how much, much they must right. be fighting with each other? Like, and. I mean, if, if I'm on Saturday Night Live and I'm grinding it out and doing a good job and putting out content and not necessarily making it on the air all the time, I would want to punch Pete Davidson in the face every single day. Yeah. Because I just see him as talentless. I mean, he's, he's, he's talentless and he goes out with every model there is for know, one reason or another. And I just I, I wonder why. I, I hate to say this because I think it's a generational thing. I'm not a big Pete Davidson fan either. I haven't seen the movie King of Staten Island, which I hear is, is great, but I had the same reaction with him and Leslie Jones is another one for me. I was like, I don't find her funny, but other people find her hysterical. So yeah, I actually kind of dig her. See, there you go. It's, you know, comedy is a very specific case. You know, it's personal. So a lot of people like Pete, Pete Davidson, I think they're all younger than we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't know how old I am. I'm, I'm, I'm probably much younger than you. Probably. <laughs> yes. 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 You just live a hard life. I, 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 I think I'm probably 10 years older than him. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I get that he's on there and, and that's the whole cult of personality thing. And that, that's kind of stuff that you, you had to deal with at Yahoo too, right? I mean, you had so many big interviews there with Titans of industry. Uh, I I didn't see them all quite frankly. So tell us, I mean, was there the Buffett? Was there Stan Drunkenmiller? Any of those guys that you kind of George Soros, George Soros was the, I've heard the of him. biggest one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I heard of him too. And uh, I can tell you, he, he, to me was a, an old world gentleman, just the way he, the way he presented himself, the way he was dressed. We went to his office, um, Central Park South, like, you know, high great views of the park. I mean, it was everything you would expect. He was very gentlemanly. And then I recall sort of towards the end of the interview, I asked him a question 
that was um, Laura Ingram was was attacking him on her show at the time about was his she ties. a thing back then? Yeah, wow. Yeah, she, you know, She's been around um, yeah. about her ties to about his ties to Nazis and did he collaborate with the Nazis? And I mean, when he was ten. Right. I, I don't and know what choice you have. I, I, you know, and I, I asked him that question and I, I kind of felt bad after the fact. Cause it was like, he was like, I never heard of Laura Ingram, which I thought was hysterical, but you know, um, yeah. Well, have you heard of Nazis? <laughs> that was my question, I George. I remember that. Yeah. But, uh, uh, that was a big one. I mean, probably the most, uh, amazing experience I had and, and totally unanticipated was spring of 2008, my producer um, said to me, you know, Yahoo has secured an interview with the president of Korea, South Korea. And yeah. you know, you, there's a, there's a small chance that you're going to go. And then in the middle of summer, there was like, you might be going. And then early August, like you're going to Korea. So I got to go to Korea, That's went cool. to the blue house to interview the president, uh, president Lee, uh, he was president of Korea at the time. Um, there were big meat. He was a hardliner too, wasn't he? He, he was, was a, a hardliner, yeah. um, right winger. He later got indicted for something. I can't remember what. Something about these politicians. As all hardliners do. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, there were there were protests in Korea about U.S. meat imports and because of all the Korea, shit we put on our meat. Exactly. Yahoo Korea, like you know, arranged this interview as a way to sort of placate you know, U.S. Korean relations. So there was, there was a lot on, you know, there was a lot on the line that I was unaware of. Um, but I got to go to Korea and my dad served in Korea. So oh, cool. I had that, you know, sense of history. And like, you know, I spent, I spent a, an extra week there, you know, touring and, you know, visiting the DMZ, which was amazing. And, but during the interview, I pulled out a picture of my father in uniform and said, you know, what do you think, what are the odds that, you know, we're gonna have to send more Americans here at some point, you know, to deal with North Korea and being a heart, it was like, then all of a sudden I was in held in such greater stature with president Lee and his whole team because they respected Americans. And they, they, that was the generation that they remembered what America had done for South Korea and appreciated us as opposed to the, the quote unquote, the kids who were protesting out in the streets who didn't like America. So it was, it was a really interesting personal dynamic, you know, and an amazing experience. And this was 2008. This was 2008. I wonder what they must think now about the kids protesting in the street. Cause it seems like there's a few more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's different, right? Um, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know. Um, but so did you get to see where your father actually, like, you know, uh, combat. served? No, he actually, well, um, I was going to say like uh, huddled in a bunker at below zero temperatures, you know, cause that's no, kind of what it was he, like. Fortunately, he was uh-huh. based in Pusan and I forget the name of the, he the said, group. he said Pusan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and I was, I was in Seoul, I was in Seoul, which is further North. I didn't get a chance to go down there, but you know, I didn't serve, so I don't know what it's called, but basically he was in the, the department where the, where people were coming in or going. So he was sort of operating in the rear with the gear in the rear with the gear. Yeah. Um, because what had happened is he told me during basic training, a shell went off near him and he went deaf in one ear. Yeah. So he didn't have to serve, which is very fortunate because he was 18 in 1950 and things weren't going so well for the Americans, you know, early in that war. So well, MacArthur, he, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You know, he, he Ridgeway came in and whooped their ass, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, MacArthur was a douche the whole way around. I mean, you know, oh, with the yeah. I will I return mean, and for the Philippines and all of it. Not salute, not saluting um, Truman. 
Yeah, the, yeah, right, exactly. Not saluting Truman, right. Did you ever read American Caesar, which is about sort of MacArthur's role as, I forget what his exact title was, of like, he oversaw the U.S. government in Japan post, post-World War II. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, 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 he did and that, yeah. It's amazing. But you, you also remind me of, uh, there's a scene in MASH where, um, I don't know if it's Hot Lips, Houlihan, or one of them has like a big picture of MacArthur and a little picture of Eisenhower, and somebody says, well, I guess that's just about the size of it, right? You know, like, <laughs> well, in his, in his mind, it definitely was. Yeah, for sure, for and, sure. And hey, look, I mean, Korea just continues to be a, a really sad, divisive situation. And if if aliens were looking down on our planet, which apparently they are, I mean, you know, yeah, who knew? of course. And yeah, they look yeah. at North Korea and South Korea, I mean, they'd have to be saying to themselves, there's obviously a better way to live than the North Koreans are living. Mm-hmm. And it's, I feel for those people. I really do. Oh, and darkness and starvation and, you know, fear of anything you say, you're going to be hauled off to a prison camp or shot. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's and, and they don't just shoot you. They like shoot you with an anti-tank missile. Yeah, I right. Mean, right. <laughs> yeah. Or put you in front of helicopter blades or all kinds of crazy, you know, it's, it's a, scary and frightening place. And I, I remember, you know, being at the, the DMZ and like you can look across into North Korea and the North Korean soldiers are there. And, and there's part of me, <laughs> at least it's like, what would happen if I just stepped over? You like, would you blow up over, from a landmine. Maybe. Yeah. No, well, no, 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 not maybe <laughs> there, there are more landmines in the DMZ than anywhere else in the world per square right, right. inch. Well, the part, the part where you, where you can go as a tourist, oh, there, right. okay. like that's where Trump and, and Kim met. It's like, you can physically walk across the border and apparently, and I remember hearing at the time, apparently, you know, every couple of years, somebody runs across for some reason or another, and then they're never seen or heard from again. Um, uh, to to so North like, Korea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, suicide's a thing. So yeah. <laughs> there's a book out by Yeonmi Park. She's a, a North Korean, I guess, escapee. Yeah, she right. said that it was more terrifying for freedom of speech at Stanford than it was in North Korea. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, that that just happened the other day, and and I that think, yeah, I th- I think that does make make some sense. Um, and unless you're speaking at Berkeley, which is more terrifying than all of it put together. <laughs> And that's that's like a lot of colleges. I mean, how much is how much do you think, Aaron, being in the media for the last, I mean, twenty some years, freedom of speech has changed. I mean, do you do you see a chill on it? Do you see us um, moving towards limiting what journalists can say and what people can write and do? Um, there, there's. Well, on one hand, there's more outlets than ever, right? You have this podcast. I have a podcast. Anybody listening can start their own podcast and, or video channel on TikTok or YouTube and say pretty much anything they want, right? But at the the big media institutions, there's definitely a political correctness, a chill on what you can and can't say, and I, that's cultural, certainly on the coasts. Um, so my my oldest daughter is, is tw- almost 20 and in college, and, you know, there are times where I'll say something and she'll be like, you can't say that, that. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Like, there's a, this younger generation has a, a wokeness about them, which on the one hand, I think is great because it's inclusive and you can be whoever you want to be and whatever you want to be. But they also assume 
that if you say the wrong thing, you're doing it in a way that's intended to offend. Right. And I'm like, oh, like I didn't know that that, you know, you you couldn't say those things. Yeah. Anymore. I mean, if you want to be called they, then just tell me. I'll call you that. Right. Yeah, exactly. But don't assume exactly. I know that. <laughs> Thank you. That's And that's almost exactly the situation. A friend of hers preferred to be called they, and my wife referred to her as she, and my daughter took an attitude of like, it's they, like, oh my God, how could you not know that? And we're like, you know, if you want to educate us, that's great, but don't shame us because that's going to, or, or, you know, you know d- yeah. backlash. don't look to yeah. embarrass us because, you know, yeah. I mean, we're, we're on your side. I mean, exactly. and, we, and we really are. Yeah. And, and past that, and I'm not necessarily speaking to your daughter, but like, you know, whoever you are in your early twenties and 25 or whatever, you're too young to be this pissed off. All right. So just <laughs> shut up. Shut up. Go through yeah. life getting kicked in the balls a few times or, you know, or not. If or, yeah, or g- okay kick, not kick somewhere. Yeah. Maybe that's a poor yeah. analogy because because there, there is no gender, but get kicked in wherever your gender is. And, and then bitch a little bit because it's just it's just getting old I and mean, tired. I agree. I agree. And we had and, you know, I. I I like her and, you know, she's my daughter, but I like her as a person, respect her. And she heard us when we had that conversation with her, but that's the mentality that a lot of these kids have. And it certainly has permeated newsrooms. I mean, you've seen what's happened at the New York times, uh, for example, it's been a, you know, a couple of high profile editors and reporters who've basically been pushed out of jobs because they said one wrong thing in one meeting 10 years ago. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, Kevin, Kevin Hart had a great response to this because he, he got some flack for used the F word 10 years ago and it came up and he said, you know, I'm sorry that w- that's offensive. I'm sorry. I said that, but if, if you don't give people a chance to apologize, how's anybody going to, you know, learn and move forward? Like there's this, this stridentness about it that I, and I sense you, you know, find problematic. Look, I think anybody of a certain generation, meaning over 25 or 30 finds it problematic, but, doesn't really tangibly want to do anything about it because they're not going to commit career suicide. Right. And I mean, I get it. You got a family, you got it. You've got a whatever, but yeah, there, there are words like, like that particular word. I mean, it just, it meant something very, very different when we were younger that didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily pejorative to a gay person personally. Right. You would say that to your friend about it almost meant anything. Right. And if you used it 10 or 15 years ago, you've kind of be, you know, you could give somebody a pass for it. I mean, doing it today, you should know better. You really should. Yes. Right. Exactly. Uh, but doing it then. And, and I think Kevin Hart handled it pretty well in the sense that, you know, take your Oscars and shove them up your ass. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Thank you. That's right. He, he, he was demoted as being the host of the Oscars because of that scandal no they were talking about doing it and he was just like no no no, you don't need to talk about it i'm not doing it ah interesting good for him yeah and they were and they were like well since you don't want to do it like we we didn't intend on actually firing you (laughs) he's like that's too bad (laughs) (laughs) so uh, yeah i i guess i guess things have changed a lot and I, i saw you and you owe him everything you interviewed al gore because he invented the internet did you thank him for that I did. I did thank him for that. That was cool. Uh, <laughs> that was, that, thank you for, that was one of my favorite interviews. Um, he seems like a I, good guy, like a genuine he, good human being. I think he, he is. And he was very uh, generous with his time. Also that 
So back in the, you know, back in the day, Yahoo Finance, we would record, you know, 10 to 15 minute interviews and then cut them up into little chunks. So I talked to him for 25 minutes straight. And, you know, from a journalistic perspective, I'm proud of it because I watched you right now. I'm like, oh, I did a good job. You know, like it's a big time guest. And, you know, I did a you good did job. You did do a good job, by the way. Thank it was you. good. Um, and I, there were many times where I didn't feel that way after interviews. I was like, oh, I can't believe I asked that question. Or why didn't I ask this as a follow-up? Anyway, but yeah, Al Gore, he was great. And, you know, I, I, I voted for him in, in 2000. And I think, you know, the world would have been a better place had he won. I, I, um, I voted for him too uh, in 2000. He, was he the last Democrat I voted for? I'm not sure. I did. Well, I didn't vote for Trump, but I certainly didn't vote for did Hillary. You vote either. For Hillary? No, I wrote in McCain. You know that. Yeah, yeah. So, nice. Yeah. yeah, he does seem like a good guy. But like, I mean, I have some great. I don't know. They're great questions for him. But I'm just like, do you still hate D. Snyder? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> you have, have you had D. Snyder on your show? I have not. I, we've got to invite D. Snyder on our show. You should, because he is. A very talented guy, you know, get rid of the hair, the makeup, the whatever. But, A, he went into Congress and just kicked them all right he in did. the, uh, um, I guess did. I can't say balls anymore, right? So general area. He's still in the, in the yeah. And he's a, he's, a, he's a great director. I mean, almost exclusively of horror movies, which yeah. is not my favorite genre. But I can see that, it, I can see his talent. I'm not, not my favorite genre either. And, and I, you know, when I was a kid, I listened to that kind of music. But he's still making music you know, in the same vein as he did 30 years ago. And he's very vocal on Twitter. I love following his Twitter feed. He once, he once responded to me because I, I made a reference to Twisted Sister and it was like made my day that he was, <laughs> I was like, D. Snyder, which yeah. reminds me of the other, probably the biggest interview I ever will do or have done at Yahoo Finance was, was with Gene Simmons. I mean, uh, did he try and sell you something? <laughs> oh, yeah, he, was, he was selling a book, but I didn't care. I was like, you know, I, I was like, oh my, it's Gene Simmons. Like, uh, you know. hey, hey, Aaron, uh, can I interest you in some kiss lips? <laughs> I've got I mean, some assless chaps that I wore in '83. <laughs> I'll give it to you for three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, I'm not wearing it today because I only wore it yesterday. But I've, I've been wearing a Kiss T-shirt around. My wife was said to me the other day. She's like, I've seen that shirt a lot lately. I'm like how can I not wear it? You keep doing the laundry and it's clean. So I, it's the top of my drawer. Every time I open the drawer, I'm going to put it on. Do you know what John Carnes is? Alfred Little was the, he's the short seller from back in the day. I don't. We had him on our show and it was just a great story that I wanted to come back on and tell that he, this was about 10, 15 years ago. And he was out with, uh, Who's the family guy? What's his name? The really funny guy that uh, created it. Uh, McFarland. McFarland, right. And they stopped by Gene Simmons' house. And and John had, at this time, he was bringing China-based companies here to the U.S. Uh, and he had a, a China-based CEO of an alcohol company. And Gene Simmons just goes off about how he could be a spokesman for this alcohol and <laughs> we could call the alcohol she and, you know, or whatever means yes right. or kiss. And and Gene's manager is, is sitting there, but Gene, you don't drink. Would you shut up, Morty? <laughs> shut up. <laughs> and this would be the greatest alcohol in all of China. Yeah, but Gene, you don't drink. He's just... And he just went on for like 40 minutes. And uh, I guess McFarland did Gene Simmons all night, you know, after they left. Oh, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, he, he's he's quite a character. And, 
you know, to me, the, the whole, um, you know, Spaceballs, the lunchbox, Spaceballs, you know, the calendar, like Kiss did all that before Star Wars. Oh, I my mean, God. They, yeah. The, oh, my God. Like the lunchbox and they were the Millie Vanilli before Millie Vanilli. <laughs> they were they were barely singing those songs, uh, certainly not on stage, but they were selling lunchboxes. No doubt. They, and the dolls and remember you were like kiss versus the mummy movie of the week, which was like the worst thing ever, but right. damn, they got but paid I, wa- and they didn't I watched care. it. <laughs> now, of course we all did. Yeah. yeah. So how was the interview with Gene Simmons? I mean, like, well, he was, he, he was promoting a book and this is, that's probably an interview where I felt like I, I wasn't as professional as I could have been because I was like, Oh my God, it's Gene Simmons. And you know, like he, he was promoting a book about his story as an immigrant, which is an amazing story. But he had this whole, he kept returning to this theme of, you know, my first advice to people who are immigrants in this country is learn to speak English. Oh. And I, I, you know, I, I didn't ask him directly, like, you know, that's a very hot button political thing for some people. Like, you know, what year our, was this? Give us some context for that. I'm going to say this was 2010 or 11. Wow. That's really hot yeah. now, but go ahead. Yeah. So he, you know, he was really pushing that and. You know, he kept turning it to his own experience. Like he came here, he didn't speak the language, he learned the language, and that's how you know he was able to be successful in America. And I tried to keep telling it turned back to you know entrepreneurism and entrepreneurism, entrepreneurialism, excuse me, and um, you know his experience. And I should have said, you know, are you saying that if you if you don't speak English, you shouldn't be in this country, or that there's a you know you have a problem with people who don't speak oh, English? Oh, good for you. As a political, but I didn't say that. You know, oh. that, that's that's sort of one of those. I wish I had asked Never him mind. a question. Never mind. <laughs> bad for me. That's you know, to my earlier point, Al Gore, good. Gene Simmons, not my best interview, but it was Gene Simmons. So that's all my uh, friends cared about. You know, it's like I put a picture of the two of us on Facebook, and you know, my Facebook lit up. I interviewed Bill Clinton a couple times. Um, that was I, I. I've not met Bill Clinton. Um, I, I think I met everybody around him, but like everybody would say and see if you agree that this guy can glad hand and make you feel special like nobody's business. I can tell you before I met him and interviewed him, I was at an event at, you know, one of the big hotels in the city, the Hyatt Regency or something. And we're in the ballroom and all of a sudden you could just feel the energy in the room shift. And he was there and just like everyone was gravitating towards him. You know, uh, probably to me that, and maybe Trump has this too, like the greatest pure politician of our, uh, you know, in recent history. I I sincerely disagree that Trump would have that. (laughs) Well, Trump, Trump has a magnetism that people respond to. I don't respond to it, but there's something about him that people really. I I think the difference is, and, and, and I'm not a fan of either at this point, although I was, I was, you know, I was, I was a pretty big fan of Clinton back in the day. I, I'm a little embarrassed for myself that I, you know, I was, I was kind of down on Monica Lewinsky, and then I, I realize as I get older, oh, okay, they just ruined this girl's life for yeah, he was a predator, no reason, and, yeah, exactly, and exactly. and you know, not that he didn't do some great things, but I think the difference be, between the two of them is it's Clinton can can imbibe that he wants to hear from you about you and what you're interested in, and and Trump is the complete opposite. He wants you right. to hear from him about him and about what he's interested in. So, I mean, I get that they're both kind of the cult of personality back to the Elon Musk thing, but very, very different in their approach. That is very true. And, and Bill Clinton did, you know, when I interviewed him one-on-one, 
he was very charming and disarming and had a you know great conversation before the cameras were rolling and then you know I, did I he make you want to take your clothes off just talking to him I, I you know I started unbuttoning my shirt you know and then, uh, I, I I totally get that I think I would too yeah it, he was great and I tell you the other person who I had that experience with not to taking off the shirt but just feeling who put me totally at ease was Joe Biden I didn't know when he was the vice president in the spring of 2009 when the Obama administration was rolling out uh, their first recovery act, he was sort of the spokesperson for it. And I got to interview him. And I, re I remember, so it was myself and my, my two producer, well, my producer, my cameraman, we were both young guys. And he said to us, you know, if I had any one of your hair, I'd be president right now. Yeah. You know, and it was just, he cracked us all up. And he, he wanted to keep talking after the interview was over. Like his people had to drag him out of the room. I mean, it was, it was incredible. I was like, all right, nothing's I've, I've changed. Got my questions. What's that? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. He's, yeah. He still wants to keep talking and there's people are dragging him out of the room. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody says he's, he's always been that kind of uncle yeah. Joe feel. Totally. totally nicest, you know, easygoing, easy to talk to you you know, pure politician in that, in that way. And now that we mentioned this, I, I did interview Donald Trump as well. at yeah. Yahoo finance. Go ahead. Well now, now tell me, is there a difference there? <laughs> yeah, there's a difference long before um, he was publicly in politics, but this is during the apprentice days. And I interviewed him at Trump tower. Did you, office. did you interview him or his publicist, John Reynolds, which is the same person, <laughs> the same person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, this was during the apprentice days and I kind of looked at it like, Oh, this, you know, like it's Donald Trump. Like he's kind of a cartoonish buffoon yeah. and we're asking him about his economic views, but I didn't take that interview seriously, to be honest with you, but I knew it would do well ratings wise. And it did. It did it. Um, so, Oh yeah. Yeah. The no. name brand recognition because Yahoo, Yahoo finance. So, our goal was always to get on the homepage of Yahoo. And to do that, we had to, as you were alluding to before, make things as accessible as possible to the broadest possible audience. Because the Yahoo.com audience, you know, they're all about Kim Kardashian and cat videos and, you know, the they don't care about finance unless they really, really are like, what the hell is going on? So that was our, that was our great challenge, Yahoo Finance, really. No, and, and look, I have to say for him, because, uh, you know, I can I can spend hours criticizing him that there were some some great policies in there that that I mean, certainly put China as an issue much more on the map. Exactly. His criminal justice reform was mm -hmm. was very under heralded and it was it was it was deeper and, and bigger than Obama's. And. When everybody said that you can't renegotiate NAFTA, was it much better? No. Was it better? Yes. So you can do it. And the yeah. same thing with Europe and these tariffs. And, and that does take me to China. I mean, I, you may or may not know I'm a pretty vociferous critic of uh, the PRC government. They're none too fond of me. What do you think, I mean, in the last 10 years, I mean, you look at where we were in 2008 when maybe you started at Yahoo, where China is, you know, certainly not unimportant, this rising economy and, and doing right. well, but did you see them being on the pre precipice of, in, in 2021, taking over as the number one economy in the world? I, I didn't see that. 
Certainly. I mean, if my recollection in those years was China was, you know, the big driver of commodity prices. That's where they would sort of come up in the financial news world uh, because, you know, all the, the demand was just going through the roof. And the whole BRICS thing was, you know, was very big then. And yeah, BRICS. Remember BRICS? I remember BRICS, sure. Yeah. Now it's now it's just C. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe India, maybe it's ick. <laughs> yeah, ick, it's icky. Yeah, and, you know, India, I would hope, could become a rival for China for geostrategic reasons. And Well, they're hiding it well. They're, they're not there, for sure, because they have their own internal problems, obviously. But, um, no, I didn't, I didn't see China as a dominant threat to the U.S., you know, given all the build that they've done in the South China Sea since in recent years, it's like, oh, you see where they're going. Oh, I mean, they're not going to militarize those islands. During the Obama administration where they're just like, hey, man, we're just we're just putting an airstrip here. Nothing's yeah, going not on. Not yeah. yeah, this is tourism. It's for tourism. Right? <laughs> right. Don't worry right. about this aircraft carrier. It's it's nothing. It's, you know, we're just we're practicing. It's for fishing. Well, yeah, their aircraft so, carriers are nothing. Having right. said that, <laughs> yes. we can't get ours anywhere near their border. Right. Which means, mm. makes Taiwan pretty indefensible, but yeah. It, what do, yeah what's so, your view of them uh, now? I'm sorry. What's my view of them now? I think I would agree with you in terms of not a big fan uh, of the PRC, the government. I think what you've seen this past summer with the new regulations they've rolled out against their own homegrown giants is probably, you know, a warning of what's going to come for any company, really, Apple and Tesla among them, if they decide they don't want you doing business in China, it's going to be very hard for you to do business in China. Well, it, it, it's kind of always been that way, where they, they hold they hold their consumerism ransom to, to yeah, us. Right, right. I, I, think, I think what they're doing is, is calling their big companies back because, look, if there is some kind of kinetic conflict or, or, or of the sort, Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu, they wouldn't be doing well here anyway uh, in that kind of environment. So you might as well get them on the HK exchange, which they took over last year, right. basically, yeah. Yeah. and then and then bring them home. And as part of a, a broader plan that they have. But, yeah, I'm probably a little more, you know, definitive on my view that they are the world's largest criminal enterprise. <laughs> And, and I mean, they prove it every single day, right? They, they just came out that they hacked Iran, <laughs> Israel. Every, I mean, there's nobody they won't hack, friend or foe. Right. I don't know. I, I, think, of, I think of Putin's Russia as more of a criminal enterprise than, than China, although the China has a lot more power and influence uh, globally. Putin's right Russia is a, is a street gang compared to, <laughs> to China. And, and how much, I mean, you think about like how much they've taken from the financial markets through grift and fraud uh, versus forced technology transfers. And I mean, you're, yeah. you're dealing with some of these executives kind of on a daily basis. Does that ever come up or did it ever come up that like we're in this conundrum here, right? We're being offered this great value in a minority partnership with a China-based company, but we're worried that they're just here to steer out technology. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, certainly when I was at Fortune, so I was at, after I left Yahoo, I went to Fortune as digital editor and I was in a managerial role there primarily. I did host the podcast. Yeah, the first one they had. The first one they had called Fortune Unfiltered. And the story there was they had another 
a reporter earmarked to do that. And then she got a book deal and was like, I can't do this podcast. And I was like, I'll do it if, you know, if nobody else wants kind to. Kind of like and the street.com. Exactly. Like, you know, I'll, I'll use my hand and see, like, I'll try that. You know, that's, that's, it served me well career-wise, you know, for better or worse, but it's gotten me opportunities. just because I've been willing to try things. So fortune, fortune is very much a, a magazine and a website about executives and the issues facing executives. So the, the challenges of dealing with China did come up a lot and every multinational CEO in the world has to deal with that. But they're, but in public, or at least, you know, on the record, they're very circumspect about what they will say because they're afraid that if they say the wrong thing, they're not going to be able to do business in China. You know, I've, I've often said, and, 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 and I'll say it again here today. I mean, the the best foot soldiers that China have in the United States are our Fortune 500 company CEOs, because sure. they got to make next quarter, yeah, or they're exactly. fired. Exactly. It's it's you know I mean or if they don't make their year they're they're probably fired or, or their bonuses are dependent on it and really they're not working for a salary. I mean they're working right, for bonuses. Right. right. That kind of was way, a big issue with you uh, it, back in it, the day, like uh, executive pay. It is, it is, and it was, and just to go back to Bill Clinton, that's his fault, yeah. right? That uh, was, Glass-Steagall? That was, well, the reform of Glass-Steagall, but specifically, he, he campaigned on this idea that no executive should make over a million dollars a year. That At the time, that seemed like a lot of money. So that was, that was sort of the start of companies paying people in options and realizing it was beneficial for them from an accounting perspective. You would know this better than I because it's a write-off and for the executives, it's like, Oh, okay. So my upside is infinite. Right. And there's no real downside to this. And that, that further fueled this idea that, you know, you got to make your next quarter and we'll do anything we can to do it. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't know that was ascribed to, to Clinton. I didn't know that. Yeah. I forget the name of the legislation, but that was a big, that was a big thing for him. I think in his reelection campaign is when he, we started talking about no one should make over a million dollars a year. And that was, yeah. That, well, that well, now they make over a million a year in salary and they get the stock options. Exactly. To yes. go with it. I mean, yeah. and and where it gets supersized is this, you know, the, the free money that we give out and the companies that are just, you know, uh, financing billions of dollars to buy back stock. And that sounds great to investors, but the reality is it's really good for the stock options that they're holding. Exactly. Yes. And, and I, I did... When I was at Yahoo, I, I hosted a series called The Excess Files. This was my own personal, you know, sort of attempt to poke the bear and, you know, say, hey, this is wrong. And it was all about income inequality and, you know, the, the outrageousness of some of these pay packages. And nobody watched it. You know, I did maybe a dozen or so uh, videos. You watched it? <laughs> AOC watched it. <laughs> AOC watched it, right, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I tried to make it humorous, so somewhat entertaining. I guess that was my my attempt to get on Jon Stewart um, or, come, you know, yeah. some other show like that. Sure. And, you know, again, when the market was going up, no one cares, right? When the market's going up, nobody cares about executive compensation. But, yeah, the fact that, you know, CEO to average pay ratios have gone, have ballooned in the last 40 years, I think is a big problem for our society. We have become a two-class society. And I say to someone who thinks of himself as, I grew up middle class, I went to public schools, my daughter's going to state school, I, you know, and that's great. And I'm, I don't have a problem with that, but there's there's fewer and fewer of us there. Either you're doing extremely well or you're really struggling in this country, and that's that's not good. 
No, and that's that's part of the reason why we have that polarized hard left, hard mm-hmm. right, and and yeah. radical moderates like myself couldn't get past a primary. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That and that that's you know a real issue, obviously, with both parties is that if you're any kind of centrist, even within your own party, you're not going to get out of the primary. So yeah, Joe Manchin seems to be the only guy that gets it done. And I think it's because West yeah. Virginia is just uh, like you're, you're a Democrat from West Virginia. I mean, God bless you anyway. So you better be a centrist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he, yeah. he does kind of, he does kind of walk the line and, and it actually sounds intelligent when he's speaking, which I appreciate. And I don't, I, I didn't often find that with members of Congress when I was lobbying them over the China hustle. I would imagine. Yeah. Did you ever interview any just members of Congress, senators, things of that nature? And I, I did. Um, my time at Yahoo Finance, I, I, I frequently would go down to the rotunda and interview people there. I remember interviewing Ron Paul and um, Michelle Bachman when her you know star was ascendant. So this is, you know, 2009, 10 type uh, era, and I'm blanking on his name, Eric. Uh, he was former. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Majority uh, leader, yeah, uh, uh, the, Republican, the, the um, little guy. Remember we saw Virginia, at, yes, at the exactly. Rodman conference. I, I forget, but he he got beat by a in a primary by a he got by primary, a, right, yeah, exactly, by a yeah. college professor. Yeah, that was sort of like you know the first inkling of what was happening within the Republican Party that got national attention. And I, what I would always say is. You know, I covered covered Wall Street, talked to guys and gals in finance, and I, I sort of understood their motivation. They were trying to make money. I would go to Washington, and I would come back, and I would feel dirty. Like, I was just like, I, I don't get these people. I don't understand them. They're sort of this, this, this naked pursuit of power for power's sake as opposed to, you know, what are the ends that we're trying to justify here? And I, I really... I didn't like doing that at all. I didn't. I don't think I could have been a, a political reporter because I just found it so distasteful. Yeah, it, it's uh, the the world's backwards there. I mean, you, you think in the outside world, knowledge is power, and down there, you know, not not knowledge is is not power. <laughs> yeah, ignorance is king, and yeah, you know, it's just the, the motivations they have. Do, and, and you know, there are people who find people in finance offensive because they're just trying to make money. But to me, I understand that. You know, yeah, I find them offensive. That's not what drives <laughs> me, but I get it. Um, the smartest least, people in Washington, and I think we all know this anecdotally, but it, it's, it's amazing to see in action are the lobbyists. And right. I mean, I don't care if you're a lobbyist for the confectionery industry. You probably know nuclear energy. You probably know... <laughs> EV, you, we, what you would want your your members of Congress to know a, a broad swath of information about a lot of different industries, where our members of Congress are, are very hyper focused on where they're from, and right. if you know corn's a big deal where I'm from, then it's all about corn, yeah, rather than understanding that we're in a global economy, and every little city is part of the global economy and you have to think with that kind of globalist globalist attitude. Yeah, I, I would agree. And that's why we have such backwards policies in this country, like our ethanol policy, you mentioned corn. I mean, that's, there's no practical reason that, you know, that Iowa farmers are so important um, in our political system. Right. But because, you know, the, the first, um, first voting for the presidency happens there and corn is so important to them. And so 
we subsidize ethanol in this country. Which you know, I would be sense. willing to give up the lions on Thanksgiving, being from Michigan, if we can stop with the Iowa being the first state yeah. that we vote in. I mean, that's... I would agree. That's yeah. Yeah, terrible. And by the way, I, I was always taught you don't bet against the lions on Thanksgiving. I grew up with. Well, you know. I mean, I mean, if you don't want to make money, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I've, I've, I've seen him every Thanksgiving for um, probably, you know, 50 years and uh, they've won a handful. They, they've won a bunch of games when they were big time underdogs, right? And, you know, and certainly covered a lot of spreads. Yeah. Um, well, they, maybe that's it. They cover the spread. That's 20 yeah. points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's depressing. So what else is on, on tap for Aaron now? I mean, you've got this podcast. Tell, him about, tell us about the podcast you're doing at Seeking Alpha. Are you having a good time? What direction are you taking it in? I'm having, I'm having a great time. Thank you. It's called Alpha Trader. It's a weekly podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your fine podcasts. And also at Seeking Alpha, it's, it's published there as well. Because it's a weekly, I like to think that we're topical, but we don't have to focus on every tick of the market. And where I've taken it from what it originally was, was we're very guest-driven. In some ways, it's similar to what we did back at Yahoo Finance, which is we get smart people on and talk to them in as much depth as we can for 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the guest and how talkative or not they are. Um, and we'll sort of tailor each show around the guest's expertise. If, if we have a someone who's an expert in China on, and we should probably have you on our podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you want an expert on China, I have somebody else. I just, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to rant about China, I go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, I, again, I love the podcast medium because it is conversational. And I, I, from this experience, I can tell you, you do the same thing. You sort of see where the conversation goes. You have certain things you want to talk about, but you're, it's not like doing, TV, certainly commercial television or video where you feel like, oh my gosh, this is going on too long and I got to cut off or we got a commercial break. And exactly. I, I yeah. I didn't love that medium. I do love the podcast and talk radio is very similar, but also you, know, you do have to take commercial breaks. You know, again, we have a great variety of guests, both our sort of regulars and rotation and people we've had on once or twice and uh, I've, I've found it fascinating and I'm always learning something from our guests. And just like a guy who finds I'm trying to conduct these interviews within the thought of, the, you know, who's listening to it. It's, it's geared towards a sophisticated retail audience and or an RIA, which is a big part of the Seeking Alpha audience. But I never want to assume that people, people know things. I think there's too much of that in financial journalism, particularly. We throw out a lot of acronyms and terms and there's, I, I know that there's always someone in the audience going like, what is that? You know, it's like, let's take a moment to explain what this is and how it works and why it's important. Um, so, you know, I, I, I hope I enjoy doing the interviews and, you know, it's an, another sort of rule of thumb of any kind of broadcast. If you're enjoying it, the audience is more likely to enjoy it. So, you know, we have fun. We joke around with guests at varying levels, depending on the guest and, then, and try to you know give people a real good uh, insight into what's happening in the markets or a particular market uh, at that given point in time that we're talking. Any, any chance that you get back on kind of live television, either through the internet or uh, on one of the networks? I mean, I really kind of see you as a, a David Faber kind of even keeled for the color commentary, whatever clown they're going to put next to you. 
Well, first of all, I'll take that as a compliment. I think David Faber is, is he's one awesome. of the best reporters, broadcast or not, in the financial world. And he's a really nice guy, and I've, I've met him a few times. He is a nice guy. He's a great very, guy. Very you know, gracious and generous and, and thoughtful. And I was, rooting, I was rooting for him to get the Jeopardy job. I know I don't think he did, but um, no, I, I really wasn't because, like, I mean, like, what are you going to be stuck? What are you going to be stuck yeah. with on CNBC then? I mean, like, yeah, well, that could open a spot for you. Oh, it could. Okay, now, I will, I will say this. First of all, um, the people who are on TV, I feel, have to have a voracious desire to be on TV. I, I don't have that, and I never did. There are, you know, you, you meet people and you just know like this person, they want to be on camera and they love being on camera. It looks like more fun a, than it is. It looks like more fun than it is. Some people love it. Really? I mean, hmm. you know, Brian Sullivan on CNBC is a guy who I think. I, I like Sully. Sully's a great guy. He seems like a great guy and he seems like he loves what he's doing. Right. He's, uh, he's very, yeah, very up all the time. You know, high energy. You have to almost have a a comical, not comical amount of energy, like in a funny way, but just like oversized amount of energy to be, to come across as normal on TV. Right. And I don't, I don't, I could play that, but it's not me. Well, there, um, I, I, I think almost all of them, I mean, if you get, you either want to do it or you don't Aaron and, and that's on you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but you know, with, with Sully or any of the rest of them, I think they're, they're not like that off camera. I mean, uh, who could take that? I wonder. I don't know. It's um, it's an exercise. I mean, it's something you build as an exercise to okay, this is this is who I'm going to be and this is how big I have to be for this this spot. But it's you you can't keep some, it up all day. Some of, some of them are and do and I you know another name that comes to mind who I've worked with and became friendly with is Jeff Mackey. I don't yeah. know if you know Jeff. I don't know, know him, but I, I I mean I've seen him. Yeah. Great, great guy, super smart, super fast, funny, you know, makes all kinds of references to pop culture so fast. You're like, wait, what did you just say? You know, in the midst <laughs> of a conversation about a stock and he's doing a deep dive on in real time. I think that's him. That's I don't think he, he can turn that off um, for better or worse. And ironically, you know, Jeff, he, he and I first met when I was at the street.com and we bonded a little bit over pro wrestling. He's a big pro wrestling fan. And he sort of has that pro wrestling type persona and a lot of, I think a lot of people on TV have elements of that, right? A little bit larger than life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, yeah, that's, yeah, you do. You definitely have to. And, and, and since you brought it up, who was your favorite pro wrestler growing up? Oh, um, I really liked Neil Mascaris. Um, uh, what? I don't remember him. He, he, he was like the high flying mask guy from Mexico. He like did all uh, kinds of crazy stuff. Okay. Um, I guess he, he was sort of the, the predecessor to Ray Mysterio Jr. Yeah, yeah. I, he he came after my time, but I, I mean I remember I remember the Mexican wrestlers and they always had that mask thing going. Yeah, it was the lucha cool. lucha. Yeah, as a kid, yeah, that's yeah. exactly not true. Um, I was I was more of a. I liked him. I liked the Macho Man. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Macho Man Randy Savage. You know, he was just hysterical, right? And and also great athlete. Like he did some crazy stuff. He was he was he, I mean, nobody could beat Andre the Giant, and that that's down as a record. And he hated Macho Man, by the way. He did? Oh, yeah. oh he yeah. hated yeah, yeah. Macho Man, yeah. Why did he hate the Macho Man? You had to be a certain kind of person to be around um the giant 
and he didn't like the loud and the affected voice oh, and, and that, and he, and I think he really didn't like how he treated Elizabeth because he kind of treated Elizabeth that way off camera too. Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. No, my favorite was Bret Hart. I think Hitman. The Hitman. Bret Hart was awesome. You you could not, I don't think many wrestlers then or today could actually beat him wrestling. In a real wrestling match, yeah. No, No. not from the family he came from. Right. No, I I think that's right. I mean, I remember, um, I mean, Bob Backlund was an NCAA champion wrestler. Oh, they had a bunch of those, right? The Steiners and, yeah. Yeah, the Steiners, right. Um, We can all agree that Hulk Hogan's bullshit. We can't agree on that. Yeah. yeah. Entertaining, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, yeah. Yeah. no wrestling ability at all. Like he just had the big foot to the face <laughs> and elbow smashed. Thunder <laughs> lips. Thunder <laughs> lips. Thunder <laughs> lips. Exactly. It's all fake meatball. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. It's great to bond over wrestling, right? That yeah, you absolutely. and Jeff yeah, Mackey. So, so you should have Jeff Mackey on your show to talk stocks and then you can bond about wrestling because he has deep knowledge about really? sort of NWA era wrestling. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I actually went to wrestling matches when when That's I was a kid. Awesome. I, I've seen them all wrestle. Uh, I almost got into a fight with Rick Rude. Really? When I was twenty years old. I, I don't think that would have worked out well for you. It would not uh-huh. have worked out well. It would not. <laughs> my father ripped my back pocket, like keeping me from going over the, you away. The yeah. Zamboni pole. I was I was I was jump. I was going to jump over it, and I. And Rick Rude was looking at me at the time because he called me down because you know where the Zamboni goes in. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, most of the crowd can't see you anymore. And I was right. giving him a hard time coming out and going back in. And he just stopped and he's just like, you know, let's do this, whatever. Right. And I started to put my leg over the pole and his eyes got really big for a second. And then they just really focused in. Uh-huh. Like, as soon as this kid's feet hit the floor, I'm going to crush him. <laughs> and that's what would have happened. Thank God, thank God your father was there. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. So what can you tell us that we need to know for this year to close it out for the year? I mean, the learning part. The, yeah, for, for us that are, you know, not into book learning, but want to hear about it. Right. <laughs> Well, honestly, the first thing that came to mind is, is um, my wife and I have a book coming out that has nothing to do with finance. All right. Tell um, me about it. Or stocks. It's um, it's a book of, of morning inspirations to try to help you get going. Uh, morning, it's a family program, people. Aaron. It's a family program, right? Um, and what we tried to do was find stuff that's not what you would first think of. You know, we don't have early to bed, early to rise, make some healthy, wealthy, and wise. But we might look for another quote from Ben Franklin that you haven't heard. And it should be out in November. So what is this? You, know, you just pick holidays. up this book in the morning and read a quote? Yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing you could flip through and, and you know, find some inspiration. From my, my wife is a coach. Uh, she's a life coach. And she got approached by a awesome. publisher to write a book, which just came out this week, actually. It's, it's, and I'm terrible at it. I should know the name. I don't know the name. I can look it up. You don't, you don't know the name of your book? I don't know the name. I don't know the I name mean, of listen, book. I mean, listen, we're just going to edit that out until you find please, the name of your book. Because, I mean, like, I'm not going to be the I'm not going to be the reason that your life coach divorced you. <laughs> uh, you know, she wouldn't divorce me. She would just make me, you know, pay for it for the rest of my life. For the rest of your life. There you go. That's what a life so coach does. her new book is called A Year of Self-Care journal it's it's 52 weeks of ways you can you know help yourself some of the best research into you know she's very into brain science and what helps you and so that so she wrote that book and it was going well and they asked her to write another book she's like well i'm really busy my 
my husband's a journalist and she drafted me to help her with the research for it. And I enjoyed that process because that's part of what I liked about journalism was doing the research and, and finding the information you're looking for. And this was more, you know, needle in a haystack kind of like, like find, trying to find the quotes that, again, you ha- you might know the person, but you haven't heard this quote before. And it's really like makes you think. Well, give us um, one. Give us one or two. Um, let's see. Um, so Neil Armstrong in the press conference after the, the Apollo landing said something to the effect of, and I'm, and I'm not going to give the exact quote because it's not in front of me. Well, Basically, by the it's, it's, <laughs> it's in our human nature to seek challenges. It's like the salmon has to swim upstream. It's just something we have to do as human beings. And it's like, wow, you know, and that, you know, things of that nature, there was a, I mean, in, in defense of the salmon, they're, they're, they swim upstream to screw, right? Or, yeah, or well, is it to lay the eggs? That's the motive. That's the motivation. And have, and have, and have children. Yes. The thi- believe me, that whole process for humans is swimming upstream. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alexander the Great said, you must behave gallantly to do justice to your name. Okay. Okay. Did he really say that? Because that was like 33 BC? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Ralph Waldo Emerson, what is a weed, a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered? <laughs> so these are the kind of things that are in this book. And here's the, I actually have the, the full Neil Armstrong quote. We're going to the moon because it's in the nature of the human being to face challenges. We're, re- we're required to do these things just as salmon swim upstream. That, End quote. that one I like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's the thing. And I, I relate to it. There, there are you know hundreds of quotes in this book, um, as well as we did. We looked in some of the research of things that can help you reach your goals, which is my wife's specialty. Um, and I sort of did the research into what the brain science says is happening to you when you do these things. I'm like I learned the term. I, I'm familiar with the term neophilia. Um, only as it relates to Carl's proclivities. Hey, that's only on Friday nights. <laughs> necrophilia. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, tell us that. <laughs> neophilia um, is a is new this, feeling. It, yeah, it's desire for new experiences. Look at and that. I it, figured it, that out on my own. Just like going with Neo, just going with Neo and then thinking about it. Right. It's a relatively new term in uh, brain science, but it's basically, you know, dopamine gets released and new neurons are created when you do something new. And that's why it's so beneficial, especially as you get older, to keep trying new things because it, it helps. It Actually, they're discovering these things now. It actually helps your brain grow and develop and your brain is a muscle like in, you know like you can work out lift weights and you can do these things to help your brain well i mean on the subject of you know how we talk to our youth i mean it, that's a good idea because you know so one of the things I, I i do when i am speaking to youth is like saying to them that you're not born happy or sad i don't know if you remember that when you're born or anything nobody else does but it is a choice and it's a lot more work to choose to be happy because you've got to put your mind in that in that mindset and make the choices that do make you happy rather than doing nothing, which ultimately does not make you happy. That is very true. And again, I can tell you from my wife's coaching, she works with a lot of kids who are sort of fail to launch kids, kids who grew up with some you know, with some wealth and then went to college and don't know what to do and no one has pushed them. And now they're, now they're 25, 26 and their parents are like, okay, come on, get on with your life. And they don't, 
they don't know what to do with themselves. Uh, um, does she, she deal with any them. incels? <laughs> Um, I I hope not. Well, I mean, they're a problem. I mean, and and I think it's a growing industry in this country. These incels that all they do is play video games. And then when they discover they don't have a life at 40 or 50, maybe they go out and shoot somebody. Ah, So that's it. So I think of an incel as sort of a very specific thing as a man who feels like he can get anything he wants from a woman because he's been wronged by women in the past. So maybe we have a different Well, I mean, I'm generally speaking, you're involuntarily celibate. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an that incel, is. involuntarily yeah, celibate. Right. I mean, you're right. just like, uh, at some point in time, you realize you haven't gotten any and it doesn't look like you're gonna. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're not going to take responsibility for your own personal life choices that brought you to that position. And that's what ends up happening. And I, I do think a lot of it is, is, not socializing with people and socializing with a, with a computer screen or a game yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and I would hope that dealing with at risk youth as you do and coaching basketball, I see, and your wife that, that we're, we're trying to bring kids out of this, but it, it, I mean, China's doing a great job with it. They just basically told Tencent, I don't care how much of your revenue you're going to lose. Kids are going to stop playing as much games in China. Did you hear that last week? Yeah, yeah, they what do they they call it opium for the mind, right? Yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah, they did. Um and and they're not wrong. I just I don't like how they're going about doing it. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, they're not wrong. I I have I have young kids and you know, again, I I have uh, a college age is my oldest. She's almost 20 and I have a 7-year-old and the difference in those 13 years of the amount of technology that's available to these kids is tremendous. I mean, there was no iPhone when my oldest was was born. So now these kids are growing up with all this technology at their fingertips. You can't keep them from it because then they'll be social outcasts. But at the same time, they are addictive. And you, it's really hard as a parent to monitor this. And I, I worry all the time about what it's doing to them. And, you know, there are times where we're all on our individual devices. And, and I'm like, this isn't good. But I really want to watch the Formula One documentary on Netflix. And my kids want to watch what they want to watch. You know, it's... Uh, well, it's, 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 it's not a, you know, it's, it's a very tough challenge for all of us to deal with that. I totally agree. Well, we're going to have you back on our show when you figure out how to fix that. <laughs> uh, and right, right after you get your, your television gig, cause I'm, I'm going to start a campaign to get you back on television. It's nostalgic for me. You did a great job. Thank you. And I'd like to see more people like you that aren't all about the big personality, more about the news, more about in, informing people and actually paying attention to the guests that you have and, and getting the questions like you did for Al Gore, not necessarily for Gene Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gene Simmons was for me. That was, that was, that was for me. Um, but, you, know, you, you reminded me when we were talking earlier about the sort of the wokeness culture that we live in. The other reality is, is that I'm a middle-aged white guy. Right. So I the job that. opportunities for me on television are few and far between actually, not just on television. I've, I've applied for jobs that on paper I'm totally qualified for and know people on the inside who've said to me point blank, like they're looking for a minority hire here yeah. and I get it. So, you know, for the first, whatever years of my life, I benefited from being a white man. Now I'm on the other side of that. And certainly any public position, like, it, you know, being on TV, most employers today are, are going to you know, put their thumb on the scale for someone who is not, does not look like me. 
Yeah, and good luck complaining about that because it could get worse for you, yeah, white boy. I'm, a, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to complain about it and just understand it's just the reality of the world we live in at this point in time, but that is the, that's the reality. We all try not to complain about it, but it sucks when it's happening to you. Yeah, um, as as it, as it sucked for you know eons, as it as it happened to minorities, doesn't necessarily help anybody right now. Which I wish we could all live a little more in the here and now, and and deal with an individual on an individual basis. But that's really not the way it's going. So no, it's not, and and unfortunately, that gives rise to people like Donald Trump who play on people's fears and anger and, you know, feeling that something's being taken away from them, that they are, is their birthright. And, you know, that, that's how you get authoritative type uh, governments. Yeah. Well, let's fight that fight together, Aaron, and make sure we don't have that here. Tell us how to join your podcast. Tell us how to follow you on Twitter. And, and so we can see your pearls of wisdom. Um, I'm at Aaron Task. On Twitter. Now, how'd you get that? Um, Are you verified too? I am verified. Check Fucker. Check mark. Actually, Darn. I, 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 I got onto Twitter early because Fred Wilson, the, uh, the venture capitalist, was a guest on what was then Tech Ticker in the early days at Yahoo Finance. And he said, you should check out Twitter. He was an early investor. So I got on Twitter at, as, at a task. And then somebody said to me, no, you should use your full name. So I just used my full name. And then when I was at Yahoo, they made us get verified. They, it was like very important to Yahoo that all their their hosts and reporters were verified. So that's how I got verified. Okay, so you are at Aaron. You are at Aaron Task. Exactly, Aaron. And I love that sketch because oh, no fantastic one spell my name wrong, and it's I mean, beside it being hysterical, but um, <laughs> now people say, "How do you spell that?" I say Aaron, you know, and they get it, um, and I love it, <laughs> and. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I always post links to the podcast and, you know, other, uh, you know, responses and thoughts to what's happening in the news. And I will, when our book is, is published, or at least I find out the name, I will definitely post <laughs> links to it there so you can find it there. All right, good. Well, we'll, we'll retweet that. And if we're not following you already. We will be by the end of the day. I think Carl could figure that much out. Listen. It's a good thing he's there. It's a good thing you have him. Oh, I say that every single <laughs> never. <laughs> Thanks for joining our show. I really enjoyed speaking to you. I hope this is not the last time that we talk. I find you super interesting, and uh, if nobody else does, I don't care. I, well, I really, I really appreciate the invitation and the kind words, and yeah, let's do it again. Thanks very much. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Give us a retweet. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. If you hear me howling around your kitchen door.